comique strip Viens faire des bulles Viens faire des Listening to Resonance 104.4 FM, and tonight's clear spot is the Electric Sheep Film Show. I'm Alex Fitch, assistant editor of Electric Sheep magazine, and tonight's show is celebrating various aspects of pop culture and their connections with film. The track you've just heard is Comic Strip by Serge Gensborg, which heralds the first interview that you're going to hear in tonight's show, which is my conversation with Sean Hogan one of the producers of a new documentary about the venerable 2000 AD, a.k.a. the galaxy's greatest comic. Later in the show, Electric Sheep editor Virginie Selavy will be talking to Helen Melody, one of the curators of the new Alice in Wonderland exhibition at the British Library, and they'll be discussing the various visual representations of Alice, both on the page and on screen. Then, at the end of tonight's show, it is my great honour to be talking to a living legend. As a belated celebration of Honor Blackman's 90th birthday, I'm talking to the actress about her time on The Avengers, her experiences as a Bond girl in Goldfinger, and her memorable turn as an Eastern European professor in Doctor Who in 1986. So to start off with, here's my interview with Sean, and we're discussing Future Shock, a new documentary that charts the success of one of Britain's greatest comic books, 2000 AD, a weekly periodical that has been around since 1977 and supplied the world with such memorable characters as Shlon the Warped Warrior, ABC Warriors, Halo Jones, Rogue Trooper, Robo Hunter, and of course, Judge Dredd. How did the documentary come about? Um, it was really just kind of a passion project. Um... So myself and, and Paul, the director, uh, and then also the, the, two, the two executive producers as well, we've all known each other for a long time. We were, we were at film college together, so we've known each other for like 20-something years. Um, and we'd always spoken about one day doing something. You know, they have a production company, but they do mainly corporate stuff. I sort of went my own way and ended up doing a lot of sort of indie films, a writer-director. Um, and so we'd kind of, we're on different paths, but we'd always spoken about doing something. And then like one day in the pub, Paul just turned around to me and sort of said, I would really love to do this. And I can't believe no one's done it. And I was just sort of like, Eureka, mm. you know, I couldn't believe that no one had done it. And, um, although I'm not a producer by trade, I was like, yes, I will help you do that because that needs to be done. You know, it was mm. like, we were both fans of it from when we were kids and I just immediately knew that there was a story there because it's not just that it was a great comic or still is a great comic, but it's also what it was responsible for. 
Um, and it was just sort of like, I know that's a story. We have to do this. And that was kind of how it started. And, and then it was just a case of kind of getting his business partners a little bit pregnant and getting them to commit to it and like start cash flowing it and all this kind of thing. And then, and then it was basically just sort of speaking to people and making sure that people wanted to talk to us mm. and that we could get the right people and make it happen, which luckily they did. Mm. I mean, like I said, it's a comic that's run since 1977 and there are indeed some creators who were there at the start who are still writing for it now, like Pat Mills. But the interesting thing, I guess, about the documentary is when you lay out the entire publishing history of a periodical, you see that there really are very much periods um, where you have certain cr creators working for a number of years and then they kind of get replaced by a new wave and so on and so forth. Was that something that you'd already been aware of as a fan or was it something that started to come together in making the documentary? Um, I think a bit of both. Um, I mean, I think we'd all sort of you know probably drifted away from it as readers in the 90s i think and it, it was partly an age thing and it was also partly the fact that it wasn't a very good period for the comic as we discuss so but we'd been reading it for a long time before that so i think we were all kind of well aware of that sort of brain drain that had happened where mm. the people that started on it or that were doing it when we were reading it as kids had gone over to the u.s and you'd sort of followed them over to the u.s and gone ah well they're not working for 2008 anymore they're doing dc marvel or whatever else so yeah you were always kind of aware of that changing situation um you know at the same time obviously pat was still there and although we didn't you know, necessarily necessarily know the full story behind it. He was clearly a mainstay, um, and so you know, we knew very early on that he was someone we had to talk to just because he'd been there the whole time. Mm. Um, but you know, I think it's the nature of anything that's that long running. It's you know, you're going to have some people sticking around. You're going to have some people going elsewhere, and and we were aware of that. And I guess we just kind of wanted to get into some of the reasons why. Mm. I assume you had a wish list of all the creators that you wanted to talk to. Um, obviously notable by his absence is Alan Moore, even though poor people talk about him in glowing terms. Uh, apart from Alan, did you get everyone you wanted? Um, not entirely. I mean, it was partly a case of... We, w we wanted to be as exhaustive as possible. We mm. wanted to try and cram as many people in as we possibly could. But you do eventually end up running out of space and time... And, and I think there was something like, you know, there are probably nearly 40 people in it or something like that, or around 40. Mm. Um, and I don't honestly know how many more people we could have crammed in it. There were a <laughs> few people that sort of slipped through the net, as I say, just because of sort of time limitations and all this kind of thing. There were a couple of other people we would have we tried to speak to that mm. we didn't want to do it. Um, Mike McMahon being an obvious one. Mm. Um, Steve McManus didn't want to talk to us either. Mm. Um and, you know, I think some of them are just kind of fed up of talking about it. Um, you know, it's what we found was, you know, obviously it's been around a long time. So people have done a lot of interviews about it. I mean, and some of the interviews are really kind of a bit superficial. Mm. And, then, and, I, and I've seen interviews or I've seen panels where some of the creators have been asked really stupid questions. <laughs> Literally, we went to a 2000 AD panel very early on when we started doing it. And the first question from the audience was someone asking, what's the exchange rate between pounds and creds? <laughs> and it's kind of like, if that's the sort of question you're being asked, then I wouldn't want to be interviewed either. Mm. Um, so there were a couple of people who were like a bit, didn't really want to give us much time or mm. were a bit half and half about it. But when we actually started speaking to them, you know, they, they opened up a bit. I mean, like John Wagner... Um, was not hugely keen to talk to us, mm. uh, I have to say. And when we emailed him, it was we were at a, a Comic Con in Glasgow. Uh, and we emailed him to speak to him about it and asked for an hour, and he would only give us half an hour. <laughs> and we sort of tried wow. to we we tried to push it. We were like, "Oh, can we just have an hour?" And the email came back, and it was like half. <laughs> so we were like, "Oh, okay, better work fast here." But when uh, when we started speaking to him. He actually opened up and we got some good stuff out of him. And like a couple of other people said after seeing it, like, wow, you actually got some really good stuff out of John because mm. he can be very tight lipped. And, yeah. you know, so hopefully it was just because we were sort of trying to go beyond the normal stuff and mm. actually scratch a bit deeper. Mm. 
Yeah, because I guess one thing, you know, like I was alluding to with the change of the guard from time to time, is one of the elements I found fascinating about the documentary was, I mean, as a reader, I hadn't quite noticed just how explicit um, Pat Mill's absence was for a number of years. And you kind of elucidate the story of him falling out with the editor and then coming back after the guard had changed yet again. And it's those kind of stories, perhaps in a way, are more interesting than I came on board on this date and then I left on this date. Yeah, one of the things we were always very clear about was that we didn't just want to make a puff piece. Mm. Um, now, obviously, we're all huge fans of the comic and we wanted to pay tribute to it, but we also thought it would kind of run completely counter to what 2080 is mm. just to make a puff piece. We were yeah. like, no, we need to make something that's got a bit of edge to it. We need to make something that's a bit spiky and a bit mm. confrontational if need mm. be and all this kind of thing. So we didn't want to shy away from stuff like that. And, you know, quite frankly, Pat doesn't want to shy away from that kind of thing either. So, you know, you get him talking and you're like, well, this is all good stuff. Uh, we should really, like, dig deeper here. Um so, yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, it's not just muckraking and, and it's about, if we get into stuff like that, there is a point to it mm. because we're trying to show how difficult it is to actually make something that's, you know, intelligent and has credibility and, and, and a bit of integrity to it when you're dealing with all sorts of, like, you know, corporate business practices and stuff like that. It's not just muckraking, um, as, as, as entertaining as some of those stories are <laughs> and as some of the people are. Um, but yeah, we just thought it was important to actually sort of show the real story. And cause, because when we, you know, some of the stuff we were being told was, you know, it's just gobsmacking when you're, when you're hearing artists like Bolland talk about, you know, artwork being used as doormats and all this mm. kind of thing. It's like, you, like yeah. people need to know this happened, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, well, I mean, it's funny, that whole cultural heritage thing, that people are aghast when they hear of the number of episodes of Doctor Who, for example, that the BBC just uh, wiped or threw in a skip, and to then think that the same thing was happening with British comics, you know, that they had no value whatsoever for the original artwork. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, I guess, that this has all sort of changed within our lifetimes, really, mm. that we've actually kind of come around to a point where now this stuff is considered hugely valuable and you'll pay mm. a fortune for it. But it wasn't that long ago that it mm. was just rubbish, mm. you know. And it's, I mean, I'm glad. It's its good that gradually people have, you know, changed their tune and, and this this stuff is valued now. But it's, it's really not that long ago that it wasn't. Mm. The publishers of 2018 now, Rebellion, are different to... There have been a number of companies that have published over the years. So I guess they weren't uh, too annoyed about you flagging up problems with some of the, uh, the comics advertising over the years, for example. Because an interesting um, uh, story that uh, you illustrate in the film is, for example, in the 90s when the powers that be thought it was a good idea to advertise 2000 AD in Loaded magazine and do really kind of tasteless, sexist adverts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Rebellion, obviously, in terms of how they've handled the comic... Um, you know, have a pretty spotless track record that they came in as, as fans and they've sort of nurtured it and they've looked after it and they knew what they had. Um, we were always very clear that although we, you know, we, we needed Rebellion's support, help to a certain extent, we weren't going to sort of make something that they had final approval over. Mm. So again, we met them fairly early on and we met with Jason Kingsley uh, um and um and Matt the editor and all this kind of thing and we sort of, and they said look what do you want to do and mm. we've said well this is what we're going to do this is what we hope to do with it this is how we're going to approach it and they were like sounds great what do you need from us mm -hmm. and we were just kind of like we just want to ransack your art and basically <laughs> and and they were like okay fine just tell us what you want and that That's was it they never asked cool. for any approval or anything like that um they seem to have got behind it. They seem they seem to realise that it's it's a good thing for them. It's mm. good, you know, it's a good thing for the comic. Um, that despite whatever issues we may get into along the way, it is a celebration of the comic. So you know, they seem very happy about it. And I have to say, you know, they've been great. They've they've supported us all along the way. Mm. It is obviously a documentary that is mostly um, talking heads, illustrated literally with um, artwork from the comic. In order to keep that interesting, in order to keep a kind of rhythm to it, 
Um, how hard was it to structure the film? Obviously, you bring in some uh, kind of rock as well to uh, you know liven things up. Um, yeah, the, the 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 structure was always sort of hugely important. That was something we worked on very hard. Um, we knew that there was no way of getting getting around it, kind of being a talking heads film because mm. it's you know it's essentially it's that kind of story. There are no visuals uh, inherent in the in in in, in the notion of people making comics you know um what we did have was the artwork so we knew that was always going to play a big part in it and and that we were going to do what we could in terms of like animating that as well mm. and bringing that to life mm. but yeah the structure was something we spent a lot of time on i mean not least because i mean the first cut of the film i watched just in terms of all of the useful footage sort of loosely assembled was about nine or ten hours <laughs> so you know obviously there's a lot of story in there that didn't make the film mm. um but we knew that obviously it lent itself to uh a sort of abc kind of historical structure to a certain extent because it does kind of fit quite nicely into a three act structure actually when you look at it because you've kind of got the rise of the comic and then you've got the fall and then you've got the rise again mm. so we always knew that that was going to play a part the trick was to actually in terms of getting into some of the side issues along the way in terms of talking about the politics and the violence and all this kind of thing what we decided to do was kind of try and tie that in with discussing some of the characters mm. because well, again we didn't want to just make something that was fan service and we didn't want to talk about characters on just in just a sense of like isn't dread cool or isn't strontium dog cool you know mm -hmm. it was kind of like well what can you actually what sort of issues can you pin to these characters mm. so every time we sort of do a sidebar on a specific character from the comic in the film there's always something else being discussed mm. so with dread it's sort of violence and with strontium mm. dog it's kind of like how that dealt with racism and all this kind of thing and, mm. and the subversion the anti-religious element of nemesis and all this kind of thing so it was just sort of finding that kind of workable structure where we could get into some of these issues along the way mm. and um and and sort of you know trying to keep it tight and keep the story moving along but you've got so much history there and there's only so much you can fit in but I, you know i'm just kind of happy with how we managed to do it in the end. I mean, yes, people have asked about you know the extra footage, and it's like I'd love to get it out there in the world, or I'd love for there to be a longer cut or whatever. But you know, I'm happy with what we have certainly. Mm, nice. So what next? The uh, the long and bloody history of the Beano. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, it's been talked about. To be honest, this was this was a hell of a lot of work. Mm. And um, I'd, I'd, I think we'd all need to take a breather before we went back and did anything else. I mean, the obvious thing for me to do f leading on from this would be Vertigo. Mm. Um, yeah, because Karen Berger appears yes, in this. Yes. Um, and actually, it's the sort of thing that you know kind of implicitly that American comics cherry pick the best creators from 2000 yeah. AD but it's nice that you actually get it very explicitly yeah. stated in the film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, in that regard, I don't think DC would be anywhere near as cooperative as Rebellion uh, were. Mm. Um, you know, especially these days when it just seems the whole thing seems to be getting more and more corporate. Mm. Um, I mean, we we even had to sort of jump through a certain amount of hoops just just in terms of talking to the Vertigo people. Mm. Um, so to do a whole documentary on them where we'd be wanting to sort of delve deep and all this kind of thing, I just can't imagine DC would cooperate. But mm. that, it would be an interesting thing to do. Mm. Cool. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. For more information about the documentary Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD, please go to www.futureshock2000ad.com. That's futureshock2000ad.com and the film is available now on DVD. Coming up next, you're going to hear Virginie Selavie's interview with Helen Melody, one of the curators of the new Alice in Wonderland exhibition at the British Library. And to get you in the mood for all things Alice, here's a memorable track by Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. <laughs> Thank you. 
there are also characters and scenarios and scenes which he doesn't include in the manuscript. So in that area, Tenniel had a little bit more sway to do his own thing. Mm-hmm. And you have a fairly limited space, and in that space you've managed to pack all sorts of things. And it seems that the, the point of the, of the uh, exhibition is to show the diversity of the interpretations um, of Alice. I mean, that's, that was my impression. Yeah, so yes, as you say, we had a, a, a reasonable amount of space, but reasonably limited at the same time given the popularity of the subject. So we decided to focus on the enduring popularity of the story and the way in which though the, the story has been re-illustrated and adapted and interpreted, it's remained very close to Carol's original book. So anyone coming back to the original story, even if they've read a very, a very modern and newly illustrated edition will recognise the story completely because it's very similar. But yes, we focus as well on showing the enduring fascination people have had with a book and you can see that by all the different ways it's been interpreted. So we have lots of really beautiful different illustrated editions and I think one of the nice things about the exhibition is not just seeing a couple that you might not have seen before or lots that you might not have seen before but actually seeing them side by side because it's so much more easier to compare them and it shows the richness of what the library has on the mm-hmm. subject. And it's interesting to see how each artist, each um, period in time, uh, movement has interpreted the story because um, you have uh, illustrations by Salvador Dali, which are clearly marked by surrealism, um, and, but also the, the ones that I find particularly interesting were the psychedelic posters um, by jo- Joseph McHugh in um, <clears throat> 1967. And obviously the whole Alice story is, takes another sort of... Uh, uh, is interpreted in a completely different way by the counterculture and the whole sort of psychedelic movement. Yes, we could not feature something from that period. I think you're right. I think it because the book became so popular so quickly and then was picked up up on by different um, producers so for example you have objects like a teacup and sauce of its Alice themed you have all these kind of early examples of memorabilia because it became so part of a cultural consciousness it was something that was really ripe for interpretation by different as you say different movements so the counterculture was a major one so we have these wonderful posters which we borrowed which are very psychedelic and we've put them purposefully either side of a sound point where you can listen to music inspired by Alice, including the Jefferson Airplane White Rabbit song, which very much fits into that sort of psychedelic, um, confusing narrative of size changing and shifting of sort of realities. And I think that that really fits... First of all, it shows the way in which Alice was, and, and the story was picked up and was used, and it no longer needed to be explained. So you could sing a song featuring... Um, characters from a children's book which was 100 years old at the time you didn't have to explain why or where that came from you just kind of could you could know that other people would know what you were talking about that was quite interesting and it's the sort of thing that you um, as you say surrealism picked up on um, political satire is quite rich relating to this subject because the characters are quite odd and the encounters that Alice has with them are quite strange. It's a really wonderful source of parody of politicians because often they can be quite eccentric or things they can say can be quite forthright. So we have two examples of parody in the exhibition as well, which feed into yeah, the Ralph Steadman um, book as well. Yes, we have the Ralph Steadman edition, which is side by side with Disney to show just how different, in 15 years, different kind of interpretations you can have. And yes, I think Steadman's is much more politicised. So, for example, his white rabbit is a commuter, sort of always rushing to get to work, and the roses are being painted by trade union members. It's very much telling the story and incorporating contemporary resonances, which I think is something Carroll did himself. So, in the original, or in his his text, he parodies songs which would have been known to his readers. So, in a way, Stedman's kind of continuing that. His illustrations add more cultural context. It's great juxtaposition as well because um, the, the, obviously it's also maybe, I don't know if you will agree with this, but maybe part of the enduring appeal of the story is that it's both, it can be both very cute and very uh, kind of aimed at children in a sort of quite twee way <laughs> and it can also be very dark and, um, and, and disturbing in some ways. 
And that juxtaposition of um, the, the Disney version with the Stedman version is perfect because in there you kind of summarise that, that sort of ambivalent uh, aspect of the story. Yeah, I think like all the best children's literature, it's something that children can enjoy and adults can enjoy too because you can see it on different levels. And like you say, some of the Italian illustrations I think are a little bit darker and grotesque, so the way the Duchess looks is quite grotesque. But the depictions tend to change depending to the social and political times in which they're created. So in the 20s and 30s, the editions we show are a lot lighter and it's a lot blander and safer. And I, I often wonder when I'm looking at them whether that's because the political situation in the period and the economic situation was so much harder, there was a depression, there was a rise of fascism, and whether that directly worked in sort of opposite way in the illustrations in that you wanted to create something safe which was the opposite of what you were experiencing but yes after certainly after the um second world war you see you see a real um range of of, of work so we've got barry moser's woodcut um edition which he created in the 80s and it goes back it's a little bit more like tenure really in terms of the illustrations but they are quite frightening and they're quite a different world from what you would expect um I sometimes wonder if children actually are a little bit less scared of things than adults think they will be. But still, you start to see a real difference. And the Disney version is obviously incredibly different. It's quite colourful, as you'd expect, and it's quite um, sweet. And I think that the way in which the the film, the animation, brings together both the Alice stories um, makes... It into a quite a different story so you have characters it, it, it's an amalgamation and that allowed Disney to do different things which you don't see in the book Would you say that the interpretation of the story has darkened over times or would you say that the sort of dark and cute uh, interpretations have alternated throughout the, the century and a half? I think a little bit of probably a little bit of both can be seen now so you will you still get editions which come out now which are obviously aimed at children um, in terms of their illustration but we, there are, I think there's a larger range of different types of interpretation now. So you have more the, the more adult version, like the Mosa, which is a lot. Well, it's it's obviously darker because it's a black and white kind of monochrome print, but it is a little bit more frightening in terms of its illustration. And I think you start to see people adding these kind of political resonances as well, which appeal to adults. So I think there's probably room for both now. And um, you've also included uh, films. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of film versions of the story, but the two that you uh, picked um, are the first um, version, a silent film from 1903, uh, that was recently restored by the BFI, and also the Young Svankmeyer uh, version. Uh, why did you pick those two out of... Out of so many. <laughs> well, we wanted to pick ones that were quite radically different, I think, just to show, but like we were saying, a range of different interpretations. I love the 1903 one because it's a time, obviously, very much before we had any kind of special effects budget. So they had to find ways to tell that story that they could actually put together. So that's interesting. And it points to the fact that this was only 38 years only so many years anyway after the tell the original story was published so it's reasonably reasonably fresh in people's minds a couple of generations of people would have been aware of that story so that was its first interpretation we picked me Jan Sankmeyer because it's quite different and it's a quite a different interpretation of the story I think it's very much inspired by rather than keeping strictly to it and it, it I think it kind of perfectly combines the lighter and the darker elements because it uses lots of stop-motion animation, which is quite visually striking, I think. But there are definitely, in a Swankmire film, there are elements which could be seen as more or less frightening, depending on your interpretation of them. So there's a little bit of ambiguity, and that was interesting to be able to show. Mm -hmm. Were you limited in terms of the films that you could show? Did you only have space for two, two films? We always have to think about budgets, and obviously film rights and things have to be cleared. So that is played some part. But I think really, because we were focusing mainly on the library hand, we tended to focus more on the print. But having said that, um, we, because for so many films, we also had to be fairly representative, so we knew we could only pick a small number, a little bit like the sound recordings. You can only pick a couple of examples, and hopefully it'll inspire people to go out and have a look for themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Um, and you've also made sure that you go from the, the origin of the story to uh, the very modern interpretation of the story. Um, so you go from uh, fairly quaint wooden figurines and tea tins to computer game. Yes, yes. So al- alongside um, manuscript and printed items, we have been lucky enough to borrow a collection of memorabilia, which, as you say, really kind of maybe fills in some of the gaps in terms of the sort of things that are on the market. And right through to the present, one of the most recently created items is a computer, or two computer games, which are currently playable. And they were created by undergraduate students at De Montfort University who entered a competition. The competition is called Off the Map. It's run by the British Library and Game City, which is the National Video Game Arcade in Nottingham. The idea is that the library provides what we call an asset pack, which includes images and sounds from our collections on a theme. This year it was Alice in Wonderland. And the students are asked to create video games. So we have two examples. And what was really nice, hopefully, is to show that enduring popularity and to show it in a different medium. So we've got, obviously, sound and we've got film, but we've also got something a little bit more interactive in the computer games. And what I, I was one of the judges, what I really enjoyed looking at the games is just seeing how relevant it still is as a subject as a source of inspiration and I met some of the students and they were obviously very infused by the subject and you never know when you put something forward how much it's going to really resonate with people today but it obviously still does and particularly the game at one which is really beautiful it has they've sort of I'm not quite sure how but incorporated the actual manuscript into the fabric of the game so you kind of see the words in the background of the game so it's really beautiful. What are the concepts of the games? Well, the, we gave the students three themes, so underground, Oxford and gardens, and they were given a selection of images and sounds relating to that, and they were encouraged to create different types of games based on that. There were different categories of games, so there was, I think, interactive fiction, and then a game which was more, I suppose, I think they're called platform games, more perhaps the style of video game people would be more familiar with. But also we have examples of, was one available in the exhibition, of games which, they're not actually playable as such, but it's like a, a built environment in which you can wander around. So it's showing the range of different types of games available and the different ways in which collection items can be incorporated. And are these only available uh, for public access through the British Library or are, are they going to be made available in a commercial form? Are you going to buy them? I'm not them? entirely sure. <laughs> I probably We probably could find out for you. Um, the students retain the rights to the games, so it's really for them to decide what to do with them. Um, I think that parts of the games can be viewed like play... Um, fly-throughs of the games can be viewed on YouTube and things. So there is some access available, but quite what they want to do with them is sort of their their decision. And do you feel for you is it a, a way of trying to engage, um, to, to make sure that the, the like younger readers maybe engage with books? Um, do you feel that uh, it's more difficult now that there are more what other forms available for them for their entertainment is it more difficult to get younger people to engage with books like Alice in Wonderland is that also why you you sort of use video games for that I don't really know I think what's been quite interesting actually in terms of the video games is that I wasn't sure how closely they would actually use the collection items, whether it would be very much inspired by them and they go off and do something else. But it was actually quite closely related. So they, many of them had a playable element, created a character they called Alice. So they kept quite close to it. Um, but in terms of sort of younger, getting younger people to come in, the exhibition has been very popular with younger people. So that's been quite nice. Um, nice way, I think, especially with sort of design students and art, art students because it's got that illustrative element to it it has encouraged people to come in I think we often worry and there's often been concern about the increase of digital and will that be to the detriment of kind of printed printed books but I think actually people are still very fascinated by the original objects whether that's the manuscript or an early printed edition but you can't find anywhere else now because it's, it's out of print so I think hopefully this will interest people and get get them kind of coming into the library to look at, especially our free exhibitions. Um, but what's one of the most interesting things for me is that the original manuscript is in this exhibition. 
And on the first Saturday the exhibition was open, I, I came in and there was a huge queue to see that manuscript. The manuscript has been on display on and off since it came to the library in 1948. So it is available, but it just goes to show what signposting something and putting it into an exhibition with lots of interesting context really helps kind of draw people in. I think maybe now because we are more kind of digital in our everyday lives, we really hanker after something that's quite original and quite tangible as well. The exhibition, Alice in Wonderland, runs at the British Library until Saturday the 16th of April 2016. In the foyer of the library, there's also a pop-up shop selling all sorts of Alice paraphernalia, and that's open until Saturday the 30th of January. For more information about the British Library, please go to bl.uk. Finally, in tonight's show, it is my great pleasure to talk to Honor Blackman, a pop culture icon and a great British actress who has become beloved over the years for her many contributions to excellent telefantasy TV series such as The Avengers, her memorable turn as Pussy Galore in Goldfinger, and even an appearance in Doctor Who in 1986. My conversation with Honor was recorded at a James Bond convention at the London Film Museum in front of a live audience. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you on this weekend that's celebrating the James Bond films and British telefantasy in general. Obviously, in hindsight, Goldfinger has become one of the most popular Bond films and certainly the one that has the greatest, I think, affection as far as the public is concerned. When you were making... What a lovely idea. I didn't know that was true. Is it true? Well, no, I think so. All right. Maybe, maybe for my generation. I don't know about younger yes. people with their Daniel Craig and all that. But... Um, when you were making the film, obviously it was the third in the series, so there already was a considerable amount of popularity for the films. So were you under a lot of scrutiny, knowing that this time it was a bigger budget, it was more outlandish, and so on? Do you know, no, I wasn't really aware of that. I mean, I'd just come out of The Avengers, and it was a job as far as I was concerned. I, I think I was aware that Dr. No had made an impression, and... From Russia with Love was a very good film, mm. but honestly, it's it's a job, and you 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 realise there's a lot of pressure because there's a lot of money in a bomb mm. film, and so you have to know what you're doing. I don't think they'd be very pleased with you if if you fifth-faffed about and didn't know it or whatever. Mm. No, but there was a fair amount of pressure from the point of view of speed, but. Um, no, I mean, I remember mm. mostly working with Sean. Well, I worked mainly with Sean because I did an interview the other day for a German company about Gert Frobe. Mm. And um, they seem, you know, people always think that you know people very well that you've been in the same film with. Well, as far as I remember, I only had one scene and a little bit with Gert. Mm. So I really didn't know him. There wasn't a green room well. that you hung. No, up but I, I did, I did tell them that when uh, uh, we rehearsed our our first scene. I'm just looking for Kleenex, and I didn't bring them. Um, <clears throat> uh, we got on the set, and we were on the stoop, as the South Africans call it, at the stud farm, and uh, I was introduced to to Gert. And uh, he, he very nicely said, how would you do, or something like that. And anyway, um, Guy said, action. And Gert said, Operation I thought, God almighty, what's he saying? I couldn't understand a word. So I just waited till he stopped speaking. And then I said my line, and then he spoke, and I said my line. And I said to Guy afterwards, I said, nobody's going to understand a word he's saying. He said, no, 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 he's going to be dubbed. <laughs> and it was typical. I mean, Gert is a very, very good actor, and a very good actor in German pictures long before he, he got into Goldfinger. But actors are always the same. He clearly went for the job and thought, what a good idea to be in a Bond film. Mm. And they... Uh, his agent, and oh, they watched 
the, uh, Guy Hamilton and the producers watched him in German films. That's right, I don't think they met him. They watched him in German films, were very impressed, and his agent said that he spoke very good English. Mm. And actors always say that, of you know, course. do ride a horse, yes, do this, that, the other. I was nearly killed by a guy who said he rode a motorbike and I had to ride side by side with him and he'd never ridden a motorbike till the day before um, and, and nearly killed me. Anyway, so um, when he arrived in England to shoot the picture, he said, uh, how nice to be here. And they thought, well, that's not too bad, you know. And that was about all he knew. Oh dear, he practiced that. <laughs> yes, bless him. But we all do those sort of things. <laughs> but afterwards, I mean, he did have a tutor with him. And so he was beginning to learn. And I think when he did, uh, what was it, Around the World in 80 Days or mm. Flying Machines or whatever yeah. it was, his English was very good. But it was just a bit startling <laughs> for my first scene with him. I'll stop talking. You, no, know, you, no, can, please, you can ask wait. another question. <laughs> and, well, like you said, you started Goldfinger having just come off the Avengers. Yeah. And both in the Avengers and Goldfinger, you did quite a lot of sort of action scenes. Was that <laughs> yeah. an ongoing process, learning that skill, doing sort of karate and, and doing stunts and so on? Well, I only ever did karate chops. I did mm. judo, of course, because, I mean, what people don't realise about the Avengers was that we had, we shot it with one commercial break. So um, you'd play a scene with somebody and then tear off, change your clothes. Most of the time you were putting your clothes on as you ran. Then I had to go into a scene where, where I would have to fight. And then at the end of that, on the cement floor, I might point out, and then uh, when you finish that, you tore your clothes off and put something else on. And then you had to do possibly a scene with Patrick that mm. was a bit sexy and saucy. <laughs> and you'd be lying there going, <gasps> because you'd just been fighting and it looked as if you were panting after him. <laughs> so it, it was really very difficult. But anyway, what, what was the question originally about doing, <laughs> about doing the fighting? Yes. Well, and learning those skills as you went yeah, along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it would have been a very clever idea if I'd, if I'd been well-schooled um, before it started, but there wasn't time. And anyway, I didn't know because when I went to see them about it, well, I saw Leonard White, and he said, you might have to do judo. And of course typical actor. I said, well, if, if I have to, you'll have to teach me because I don't know. And I think it was the third episode when uh, the script said, Kathy reaches into her bag for a gun and every woman here and probably every man knows that if a woman reaches into her bag for a gun, hmm. she's going to be dead as a dodo by the time she finds <laughs> it. So I said, oh, couldn't I do something? Uh, one of these judo things, I said. And oddly enough, there was a guy in the cast who, who studied judo, and he sh showed me some very simple throw. And I did it with such aplomb, because I was determined to do it right. Because there was always that pressure, mm. being the first girl who'd ever done it. And, and men couldn't wait to say, oh, she ain't no good, you know. So uh, I did it very well, and they were all overexcited, and that's when I started learning, mm. but I didn't learn in the, the way you should learn, which was the simplest throws, because the stomach throw is, is the one really dramatic throw. Mm. Judo isn't really dramatic or exciting. Everybody's seen it in the Olympics, all struggling away, trying to get somebody off balance. But the stomach throw is when you get hold of somebody's lapels and you put your foot in their chest and then you jump, you dump down onto your bottom and throw them over your head. Mm. And you, you don't kick until they're well over your head, otherwise they land flat on your face. Um, so uh, in almost every fight I had to do a stomach throw because <laughs> it was the most dramatic. And when you came on the Avengers, that was the start of the second series. And so even though it had been on air for a year, it was really when you entered the cast that it became the Avengers that we know today. Yes. 
Yes, oddly enough, I'd never seen Ian. Uh, I'm trying to remember his surname. Henry. Henry, that's right. Oh, such a lovely actor. Killed himself with drink. It's just dreadful. Um, no, he was, he was a great actor, but um, I hadn't seen it. I'd been very busy. I can't remember what I was doing. And um, no, uh, it is true that once Patrick and I started, it was quite strange because, you know, you start something and as far as you're concerned, it's a job and you're signed up for six months and you think, oh, well, maybe it'll last six months, I don't know. And then by the time we got halfway through, everybody realized it was going to be successful. And by the time we finished the first series, it was very hot and I was into the leather and one thing and another. <laughs> and that was very hot too. Um, and it was, it, it was very exciting because when you start something, really, you have no idea if it's going to work or not. Mm. And there are other things one has done in one's life that people had hopes of and and it, it didn't come to fruition. I'm trying to think of anything, but anyway, I can't. But it was exciting. Well, I think they, they did a remake of The Avengers a few years ago, and one thing that was very obviously wrong with it was that there was no chemistry between Uma Thurman and Ray Fiennes. And I think both... Oh, with... that film. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I love the way I... I don't know if I did actually see it. Um, I was in Paris, and... I was going to the movies, and I remember, I remember very clearly, I went to the cinema, and there was a roped-off queue for the Avengers, and there was a roped-off queue for whatever I was seeing. Mm. And there was nobody in that queue for the Avengers, and lots of people in my queue. Not, not my queue, because it wasn't my film, <laughs> but... So, no, it wasn't successful. Because what I was going to say was, both with the Avengers and with Goldfinger, obviously something that's very obvious to the audience is the chemistry between yes. you and your leading men. Yes. So that must be something that you enjoy as an actor when you know you're w working with someone who works very well with you on screen. Yes. And, and of course we did have the advantage of lasting for two years. Mm. So Patrick and I knew each other very well, mm. you know. Um, and oh, Patrick's such... I, I had an, well, I didn't have an email from him because he's not, I think he's 90 now. Gosh. And, uh, and I, I sent a, a message to, an email to his son because Patrick doesn't do the computer, uh, uh, I don't think anymore. And they, they emailed back and said, he said, he said, I didn't know anybody was as old as I am. Well, thank you, I'm not. But, um, and he, they said that, uh, they told him at breakfast, and he, they said he talked about it all day, you mm. know, because we did have such a wonderful rapport. Mm. And Patrick is one of life's oh, ending gentlemen, because I don't think that, Many people like him left because he was, and he was always worried about me fighting. And he would always say, Oh, darling, don't, why don't you do it like me with an umbrella or a sword or something? And the whole point about the Avengers mm. was that I was the female who played the sort of butch part, <laughs> and, and he, well, he didn't play the feminine part at all, but. I mean, he was a bit of a dilettante and, was, and uh, thought that uh, with wit and with cunning that mm. he could win, you know. No, it was a lovely, lovely time in my life, I have to say. And then with Sean, how long did it take for you to develop a rapport working with him? From the first day of shooting, what did it About take you? About ten seconds, really? sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he is the sexiest thing on two legs there is. No, he's great and funny and professional and we, we had quite a lot of fun, I have to say. I mean, we weren't together for that long mm. and everybody thinks, you know, that, that in Goldfinger I went to all those wonderful locations and I don't know if you'd like to guess where my only location was, which was 
North Holder Airport. That was as far as I got. Everything else was at Pinewood. Mm. And everybody else went to all these exotic places. And I didn't. Such is the uh, the problem of British filmmaking. Yes, but I I did have the compensation of working with Sean, so I won't won't complain. Mm. I mean, obviously, to cover the rest of your career would take a couple more Ah, hours. And uh, I'm sure there are loads of people in the audience who have questions about that. But can I just add a a personal favourite of mine? Yes. Which wasn't necessarily that popular at the time, but was your performance in Doctor Who in Tile of a Trime Lord, which I just thought is a riot. (laughs) That was so funny. First of all, Colin Bacon made me laugh from beginning to end of rehearsal, which doesn't help. And you, I don't know, what was it called, something about the... Vervoids. The vervoids, yes. And I don't know if anybody knows these plants, that I'm a scientist and I grow these plants, I develop these plants and eventually they grow into like human beings, Mm. don't they? Which unfortunately um, looked a lot like the female um, reproductive organ. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> God. Never. I didn't really realise that. But in rehearsal, uh, I had to get killed by them. And in rehearsal, these guys just came and they had to carry me aloft above them. Uh, uh, you know, they were these leaves and everything. And it was fine in rehearsal. But when we came to transmission, and then they were, there they were... Uh, uh, practically stripped and leaves and twigs coming out of who knows where (laughs) and uh, they looked ridiculous and they had hoist me up and my most difficult thing in the whole of the episode was lying up there dead trying not to giggle with these ridiculous men underneath with next to nothing on but leaves (laughs) Uh, anyway. It's a hard life. Yes, it's a hard life. <laughs> We've got uh, a roving microphone in the auditorium, so if anyone has any questions, if you could raise a hand and uh, Antoine will bring it over to you. Hello. Hello. Um, you've worked on uh, quite a few comedy series as well as your dramatic roles. Um, would you say you prefer comedy over drama or? Would you repeat that question? You've acted in a lot of comedy roles as well as action and drama. Do you have any particular favourite of the genres you've worked in? Because comedy is obviously quite a different... Yeah. I have to say that it's much more fun to work in comedy and much more difficult to work in comedy than it is in drama. Um, I'm trying to think of... I remember doing a play called Move Over Mrs. Markham, which was one of Ray Cooney's earliest pieces. And the, the pleasure that gave me, because every other minute the audience was rocking with laughter. And it's lovely to play that, but your timing is, is so important in, in comedy. And it was so funny, I, I did a... a not a tour of Australia, that would take forever, but I played um, Sydney and Melbourne. And as you run along, um, it sometimes happens that one of the laughs that was dead ringer, you sort of, uh, you lose it. And um, it was very funny, we used to, Ray used to send us money for a party Every, I don't know how often, we were so successful because he could really afford it. But he's lovely anyway. And uh, if we lost a laugh, we'd be at this party and we'd all had one or two drinks. But we'd ring home to Ray and say, we've lost the laugh on so-and-so. And Ray would say, are you doing this? Are you doing that? What's happening behind you? And is he moving or what? You know, and he would analyse it over the phone. Because comedy has to be exact, you know, if you want to win all the time. And it was fascinating exercise. i tell you something I did love was uh, the upper hand. Do you know the upper hand? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Everybody 
everybody who's ever seen it loves the upper hand, and absolutely nobody can remember the title. It's quite weird. <laughs> it's really, really weird. But I love that, but I was very spoilt in that, really, because I didn't overwork, and I had lots of lovely lines, and she was a ridiculous character to play. I mean, she was outrageous, and I, I really enjoyed it. But I, I have to say, comedy is, is my favorite. Theatre, to be truthful, is my favorite anyway. Uh, any other questions? There's a gentleman over here in green. Yes, I said to you earlier, you look marvelous. And I, I think you're, I think you say you're 10 years old, and they always thought they were going to be your tears. I think that's about right. But you look great. I was going to say about the, you're talking about the, uh, People not going to do something and they're and they judo. I'm a big fan of the Virginian TV series. It's something actually that James Dury and Dirk McClure are good, right? There's something else good. They went out a scratch course, they said you can write it. But I wanted to ask, do you ever have to use any of your judo or karate in um, In life? Perhaps some man is a little bit too naughty with you, do you guess? Translate a bit for me. Uh, yes, well, Do I get to use Judo? Well, no? yeah, there were two points. First of all, he wanted to say that even though you're one of the older Bond girls, you look still one of the most marvellous. Oh, how kind. Thank uh, you and the other was, uh, he was asking if you've ever had any opportunities to learn, use your Judo skills in real life. No, do you know, it's terrible. There was one any occasion. Any actors you didn't like, and, you know, hmm? <laughs> any actors you felt had to be... Oh, any actors? Well, off screen. Oh, actually, you know. actually, <laughs> since you say that. Do you know an actor called Anthony Booth? Yes, yes. Sherry Booth's yes, oh yes. father. Yes. Not my favorite man. <laughs> and he came to rehearsal, because he was in one episode, and he came to rehearsal, and when we got to the bit where, because I didn't throw people in the, in the rehearsal room, because you know, <laughs> I might no damage them on the floor, and we didn't want that to happen before the show anyway. And we got to the piece where uh, I was going to, and it was a question of him hiding behind some files and me discovering him and so on. And he said something like, oh, and this is where she comes out and she tries to throw me or something like that. And he was such a clever sticks, like, I'm a man and she's a woman, how could she manage? And I, I looked at the director, and he knew exactly what I was thinking. So he said, well, just walk it through, Honor. So he leapt out at me, and I threw him good and hard on, <laughs> on the floor. And I thought, yeah, son of a bitch, you just learn I can do it, you know. Because it, and it, you think, it makes me so cross. He's read the script, he knows what's going to happen. Why kick afterwards? It's so stupid. So. Did you get a reputation after that? <laughs> no, nobody was so stupid. I mean, when you read the script, you know what's going to happen. You accept that's going to happen. And if your male pride is so fragile that it can't stand up to it, then bad luck. <laughs> enough, enough, yes? I think we've got time for one more question. Lady, uh, in the red top over there. Hi, good morning. Good morning. What was it like working with the wonderful Joe and Matthew Robinson on your book? And who was the best at Judah? Because Joe seems to think he was. You have to repeat because I don't hear that. Um, working on your book, who was the, the best at Judah? With Joe and Dougie Robinson. With Joe and Doug? Yeah. Because Joe seems to think he was. Why? Are you are your relative? Joe. Sorry? We know Joe. Oh, right. You know Joe. <laughs> yes. Joe's lovely. Joe was... Joe is the best, and well, he is. Um, it was very funny, I have to say, when I did the book, because I think that Robinson Brothers starred in the book, because it was, you know, when the photographer would set up where we were going to do this throw or whatever, and there would be a question of, oh, well, he had the close-up last time, you know, I thought, oh my God, who is it starring in this book, you know. But anyway, they were great. They were great and very good teachers, I have to say. But I, it's true to, true to say that I like Joe best. <laughs> and he happens to be your friend. 
Yes. <laughs> if, if you speak to him, give him my love. I have tried to ring him, but I don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yes. Um, well, actually, there were some young people bouncing up and down the back. So, if you want to quickly ask a question. Uh, did you go to acting school? Or did it come naturally? Did you go to acting school before your first part? How funny. Yes, I went to, to drama school, but... Um, A career choice I, you could recommend? Well, I, well, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, but I didn't... I didn't... Well, poor underprivileged creature that I am, I didn't have enough money that I could go full-time. So I used to do two lunch times and one private lesson a week. And uh, that did me. I mean, uh, I came out the same as the people who spend all day there, so mm -hmm. clever sticks, you see. <laughs> well, I think it was time well spent. Is it? All right. <laughs> it was a, a great pleasure. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you could thank Miss uh, Honor Black. Thank you very much. If you'd like to buy prints and sign photos by Honor Blackman and find out what she's up to at the moment, please visit her website, honorblackman.co.uk. That's H-O-N-O-R blackman.co.uk. You can find an extended edition of tonight's show as a podcast and our previous episodes, as well as all things electric sheep, including live events at the Horse Hospital, not to mention the magazine's renowned back catalogue of interviews, reviews and articles on film, please go to electricsheepmagazine.co.uk. The Electric Sheep Film Show was presented and edited by Alex Fitch, with the interview with Helen Melody conducted by Virginie Selavy, who also curated the music in tonight's show. The Electric Sheep Film Show will be next on Resonance FM on the 20th of January. And in the meantime, hope that all you listeners out there have a brilliant festive season, even if, as the Sonics are about to remind us, you don't believe in Christmas. Good night. Well, mom and dad said be good, so I did what I should. Hung my stocking on a wall, didn't get a thing at all. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Cause I didn't Nothing last year. Well, stayed up late at night to see Santa Claus right sure enough. Don't you know that boy didn't show? Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Cause I didn't get nothing last year. Well, tried to get a little kiss from a pretty little miss. She slapped me down, said the jerk, this cold doesn't work. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Cause I didn't get nothing last year. Oh!